to be here to worship the Lord with you, to, to bring him our praise and to receive whatever it is that he has for us because we know he is good. He is so good. I want to um, go ahead and share with you a number of things happening in the life of the church, opportunities for you to plug in. We've got a lot coming up. Uh, I cannot believe it's the end of October. So we are right on the cusp of the holiday season, and I'm excited to let you know Operation Christmas Child is in full swing. This morning we have shoe boxes back against um, the back wall under the connect wall uh, for you to grab. We've got shoe boxes, and what we do with those boxes is we fill them with goodies um, and things that will bless children around the world, and then we bring those to Samaritan's Purse, and Samaritan's Purse brings those boxes literally to children in need all over the world. It's a way that we get to touch, um, touch people on the other side of the world for the glory of God and to show them the love of Christ. And so we would invite you to engage in that opportunity. Um, you just pick up a box in the back, fill it up with those things, and there are instructions. I believe they're in the box, and if not, they are on the website, the Samaritan's Purse for Operation Christmas Child. We fill them with those things. And then bring them back to church right here on Sunday, November 12th. November 12th is when those boxes are due back. If that's something you want to engage in but don't, um, want, don't want to or can't do the shopping, if you want to mark on your Connect card and um, just put a donation in for $25, $25-$30, we have people, we have volunteers that will go fill those shoe boxes and do the actual shopping for you if that's something you want to engage in. And then another exciting opportunity for Operation Christmas Trials, we actually send teams to the warehouses that seal, pack, check, seal the boxes and send them off. That's the last stop before the boxes actually go around the world. Um, we have had so much fun over the years sending teams to help do that. I've done it. It is, it is like wrapping Christmas presents for your kids. It's so much fun. You get to open the boxes, make sure everything in there is safe, seal them up and get them, and you get to actually find out where the boxes, your hands touched, what country they go to, and how many you've sent out. So we would encourage you to do that. We have two teams going. Um, this is for uh, people who are 13 years old and up. That's the, that's the minimum age that Samaritan's Purse has set. So for 13 years old and up, we have a group, um, Faith Men and Faith Youth are going November 20th. So if you are a man and or a youth and you'd like to go on November 20th, go ahead and put your name on your Connect card and check the box for Operation Christmas Child. Um, we'd love to plug you in there. And then we have another group that's open to anyone uh, on Wednesday, December 6th. Both of those are from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. We'll be working for four hours, um, and it is so much fun. It's just so much fun. So I encourage you, if you have any interest in doing that, it's a blast. It's fun to get to work with people from our church together. It's fun to be part of something much bigger than ourselves. So go ahead and sign up on your Connect card for that. Also, this Friday is the Faith Women's Campfire Connection. So if you are a woman, you are invited. Um, 13 years and up, you are invited to the Women's Campfire Connection. It's at the Prevet Home, um, and you're going to have food and fellowship and campfire. Just bring a chair and a blanket um, or a coat because it's going to be chilly. It's campfire weather, so that's awesome. Um, and I just want to encourage you. Uh, if, if you went to the last Faith Women's Gathering, you know that when we say fellowship, we don't just mean, let's get together and chit-chat and then go home. 
No, we mean fellowship of the body of Christ. So when you come, it's going to be a fun time with, you know, not a ton of structure, but you are going to leave having connected with other women, having gotten to know the stories. There will be some um, that are sharing testimonies and, and those things. You're going to leave knowing women in a way that you didn't know when you got there. So I encourage you um, to take advantage of that opportunity. It's going to be a great night. We just ask that you um, sign up. It's free. We just ask you to sign up so we know how much food to prepare. Um, that QR code uh, is in your bulletin for that. Next up, School of Kingdom Ministry, also known as SOCOM, abbreviated such, is launching in January. And this is, for those that haven't heard me <laughs> repeat this and repeat this, this is our... Um, our very exciting uh, initiative, discipleship initiative, um, and understanding how to live and walk out being naturally supernatural in everyday life. It's a um, two 13-week semesters once a week, and it's just for everyday people who desire to be equipped to partner with the Holy Spirit and be a conduit of the kingdom. Um, just in everyday life. And so we have an informational meeting uh, for that school uh, on November 12th, right after church. Sunday, November 12th, right after church, we'll do an informational meeting right here. Uh, you'll have a chance to ask questions. You'll get a lot more details as far as schedule and price and structure and what it, um, uh, what the content is and all of that. So if you have any curiosity, if there's any piece that's piqued your interest about the School of Kingdom Ministry, I really encourage you to uh, mark your calendar for November 12th for that. And lastly, we have our Thanksgiving lunch coming up, our all-church Thanksgiving lunch. Now, I know Thanksgiving is often um, a time where we gather with family um, to celebrate uh, what God has done throughout the year. Um, and this is a family. God says you are brothers and sisters in Christ. So we want to gather as a church family um, and celebrate all that the Lord has done and bring him our Thanksgiving. So we're going to do that Sunday right after church, November 19th. So if you'll mark your calendars for Sunday, November 19th, we will gather in the fellowship hall um, for some really good food. I was just thinking about this as I was getting ready for this morning. And this, this uh, Thanksgiving lunch is where my love for hash brown casserole has grown. My love for banana pudding has been birthed. And so I just encourage you to enjoy the blessings of the Lord in that. Um, all food is, yeah. Anyway, uh, so if you would like to come, we, we let you know church is providing ham, turkey, rolls, beverages. We would just ask that when you come, you bring something to share. Um, and just to help us make sure we don't all end up with, you know, 58 banana puddings, although I'd be totally fine with that. There are cards on the back connect wall. And what you're doing, when you take a card, you'll see there's, you know, I'll bring a salad, I'll bring a casserole, I'll bring dessert. When you take that card, you're saying, I will bring this. Okay, so we've kind of tried to spread it out so we get a, a variety of different different things. We just ask that you bring something to share and enjoy what other people share. So um, with that, that's, like I said, there's a lot going on in the life of the church. We'd love to have you plug into any or all of it. But right now we're going to turn our attention and our focus to the Lord. So if you would stand with me, I'm going to read um, what he put on my heart this morning. This is a passage that... Um, a number of us uh, are getting more and more familiar with and, and with the depth and, and the implications of this passage. I'm going to read um, the first few verses of Isaiah 61. This is uh, the words that the prophet Isaiah spoke um, in light of the coming Messiah. This is what he was speaking about Jesus who had yet to come yet. 
Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and Jesus takes these words on himself as he reads the scroll of Isaiah in the book of Luke. He speaks these words. I'm going to read this again, and I want you to picture Jesus speaking this. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus tells all those who are in the synagogue, he, sa he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says, this is me. And we get to live in the reality that Jesus came to do these things and has done them and is doing them. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. We live in the year of the Lord's favor. So would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you that you have chosen us at this time, Father, to live in this specific time and place, Lord, <laughs> where we get to be your temple or when we have chosen to put our trust and our faith and our hope in Jesus, your spirit has filled us, Lord, and we walk in the reality that we are your temple, that, <laughs> that you literally live inside of us. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for setting the captives free. I thank you for binding up the brokenhearted, God. I thank you for recovering sight, God, for the blind and for bringing the favor of the Lord to your people. Lord, I ask that you would give us, Lord, give us the boldness and the courage to take hold of the reality of what you have done and what you are doing. Father, I pray that you would stir up your bride in this place. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we're here to meet with you, so I ask that you would come in your waves of grace, in your waves of power, Lord, that you would fill this room, that you would flood this place from the top to the bottom with your presence, that we would be changed, Lord, for your glory and our joy, and that you would receive every ounce of gratitude, every ounce of praise, every ounce of a yielded heart to you this morning that you deserve, which is all of it. God, we praise you in this place, Father, inhabit our praises in Jesus' name. Amen. Woo! Amen. Does anybody feel the fire in this room? Woo! If you were here for prayer, even the announcements this morning, it's like, yes, yes. <laughs> Hallelujah. When the Spirit falls during announcement time, it's a good day. It's a very good day. So I was, I was actually looking for Pastor Charles because he and I have not been able to connect this morning. Do you have the picture uh, that you guys can put up? Pastor Charles, I, I was gonna tell them about this picture. Uh, is we, how many of you saw the Facebook post yesterday about we're entering war season? And so last Sunday, um, 
Pastor Charles told us a story and I can retell it, but I, I didn't hear it coming from the Lord like he did. So I think it would be better for him to explain this picture. But there's an army rising up. And you know that the favorite, my favorite army is the army of worship. It's that warfare through praise. But the Lord is drawing me into warfare through prayer. And it's happening. It is happening. But something unique happened last week. And as you can tell in that picture, we're all gathered around the drums, but we're not praying over Ashley. As a matter of fact, Ashley was not even here uh, that Sunday morning. So as we go into war today, you know, oftentimes I'll quote that, that passage uh, uh, with Jehoshaphat when they were going to war and they called out the worshipers to lead the battle. And so I've kind of always said that's kind of the, the worship team, praise and worship team, but it's you. It's anybody who will stand up and go to war uh, with, with praise and with worship. So Charles, why don't you tell us about the picture and then we're gonna, we're gonna sing. Um, so uh, when we pray on Sunday mornings, 9.20, get here and we pray. Um, I'll do different things. I'll, and lately I've been asking God, where do you want me to pray? And um, I felt like, uh, so I said, I was starting to just walk. I like to walk as well while I pray. And I said, God, where do you want me to pray? And I was walking and I was like, by the drum set. And I said, the drum set? Okay. Why do you want me to pray by the drum set? And then I felt like I heard God say, it's because of a drum beat for war. And I said, okay, I don't know what that means, but let's go. Um, so then I came around and I saw somebody else praying up there. And I was like, huh. And then I did another lap. And by the time I was done with my, at this point, second or third lap, there was somebody else praying up right by the drums. And I asked them and they didn't get drums specifically, but they felt called to pray over there. And so um, I just started to pray and I don't even remember what I said to everybody to gather us up by the drums, but just that we were supposed to pray spiritual warfare prayers, not just uh, God give us that, not just God show up, not just God be here. Though we want all of those things, um, but it was very much a God um, prepare us for war. And so that phrase drumbeat of war was kind of what I held on to that morning. Yeah. Thank you. So do you remember a couple weeks ago when, man, worship was getting really exciting in the room? And I said, I felt a shift. And the Lord told me afterwards, that was the shift of the faith congregation uh, from just singing songs to going to war and worship. So God of angel armies, would you come? Exodus 15 says, the Lord is a warrior. He is fighting for us and every victory is his. So come on church, let's rise up, let's worship the Lord.
does it feel to have the God of angel armies as your friend? Hallelujah, is that not powerful? Well, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Every victory is yours, O Lord. band. I was in the wrong key. Stormy side. 
victory is yours, Lord. Lord, you are our champion. You are the warrior king. Woo, hallelujah. You are my champion. Giants fall when you stand undefeated. Every battle you
question. How many of you in the room can say, I used to hear voices in my head, but they're no longer there. I know that there's several of you, yeah, around the room who had those voices and those voices are now gone. That's because the Lord was fighting your battles for you. He took care of that uh, darkness that was coming into your mind. All right, so I have to tell you, two weeks ago, I had this song prepared and we dropped it at the last minute. And I walked over there and Stephanie Bell said, hey, we haven't sang Plead the Blood in a while. I was like, oh, well, we had that and we just dropped that. But she told me a story and I said, okay, we'll pick that back up. But I'm gonna invite her right now to introduce this song, Plead the Blood. I hope I can talk. I'm shaking right, if you're not feeling the spirit, then you need to shake <laughs> your right. pulse. <laughs> um, so the story that I told Amy was that I'd seen a video and it was just a clip. Um, of a former witch and she was saying that um, when she would come upon children whose parents were pleading the blood over them she couldn't do anything she couldn't touch them and so that's what we were talking about so um, I've been praying about how to introduce this song and I thought the blood of Jesus we talk about the blood of Jesus a lot first Peter by it we are ransomed Ephesians 2 we're brought near to God Hebrews 13 it makes us holy Revelation 1 is blood frees us from our sins. But this song starts out talking about Exodus, where it talks about the Passover. And just to refresh your memory, um, they've had the plagues, and the last one's coming, the tenth plague. And God tells, well, Moses tells them what God told them to do. Um, so they select a lamb. Um, they kill the Passover lamb. It says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. That's the power of the blood of our Jesus. And then in Revelation 12:11, it talks about it again. I want to mention this verse. Whew. That's good. Um, Revelation 12, 11 says, And they've conquered him, the enemy, by the blood of the Lamb. Y'all, that's how we win. We talk about power in the name of Jesus. Combine it with pleading the blood of Jesus. You can't lose. I'm telling you what. The blood of Jesus. Oh my gosh, it's so powerful. And I felt like I was led to, to share this. You know, there's, I don't watch the news, but you, you don't have to watch the news to know that people are saying we're headed for World War III. Well, if you're a Christian, I want to tell you, you're already in a war. You ain't got to wait on World War III. You're already in it. So when I was talking to the Lord about it, I said, God, what do you want me to say? I said, he said, tell him it's time to get out of the bunker. Get out of the bunker. You're in a church where you're equipped. Now, we're not in a little wimpy church where they're telling you how to have a good day, how to be happy. Yo, <laughs> We are learning how to fight the battle. You are equipped. Get out of the bunker. God says, get on the front line. Use your voice. You're not down the bunker saying, I plead the blood. Jesus. No, you're on the front line saying, I plead the blood. Get out. And this song is going to talk to that. I'm excited, y'all. <laughs> I'm excited. Um, it's, it's an exciting time to be alive. You can either be afraid 
or you can get on the front lines and be a part of history. There are saints that have died that look forward to this day. They didn't get to see it. We do. So don't spend your time being afraid. You are equipped. We've sung these songs. Have you listened? Do you believe them? Or do you just sing them here and then you leave and you're afraid? There is a spirit of fear that is operating. God told me three spirits. Fear, intimidation, and complacency. Don't be complacent. Don't wait on the rapture. It's going to get hard before the rapture. It's not going to get easy. If you believe in the rapture, okay. Don't stay in the bunker. If you really believe that your God is all-powerful, get out. Get in the battle. You're on the winning side. You're on the winning side. Why be afraid? Join the battle, y'all. Come on.
I thank you. I praise you for your goodness. I praise you for the blood, Lord. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out for justice. And the blood of Jesus says justice is here. The blood of Abel cried out from death. The blood of Jesus cries out from life. So Father, I pray that, that we would know you. The power of your resurrection, the, the depths of your goodness towards us. Lord, reveal yourself to us through your word. What you say, Spirit, speak to each one as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Remain standing. 50 weeks in the word. Each week we uh, read one chapter every day. We memorize one verse and then there's one Bible study on that chapter this week we are in 1 Kings 18, 15. And so uh, we have people who have um, agreed that they were going to memorize it throughout the week. Um, if you didn't, uh, don't worry. If you never signed up, doubly don't worry. Uh, but here's our time where we're going to recite it. So 1 Kings 18, 15 says, And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts live before who I stand before him, I will surely show myself to him today. 1 Kings 18, 15. You may have a seat. We're having a family Sunday, which means all our kids from third grade and under, who are usually downstairs, are now upstairs with us. And so to help these kids as we go, we have some coloring uh, clipboards here. So if you're in third grade or under, and you would like a clipboard, you can come up and get your clipboard. Do I have anyone? Yep, come on up. It's okay. Don't give me that look. There you go. No, hey, you're not third grade. Sit down. If there's some extra, you can come up. How's it going, David? You doing good? Yeah? Awesome. Who else? Anybody else coming up? Oh, Isaac. Happy birthday, Isaac. Happy birthday. I'll hand it to you, Owen. Now you can go. No, if your brother wants one, he has to come up here himself. You go to the back and you go. Okay, is that everybody third grade and under? Now if there's anybody up to fifth grade, you can come get one. Oh, son, my son. Oh, I love you so much, buddy. No, you'll take one. AJ, go for it. Get out of here. Noah, Delicia, anybody else that's that age? No? We good? All right. Turn to Habakkuk. We're starting a new series this morning called Wait and See, uh, Lessons in Habakkuk. It's been a little bit since we went through a book of the Bible, since we've been doing uh, Reformed, or since we've been doing our dogmatics. Um, so... Uh, I decided that we needed to do a book, but we also needed to do one uh, that was relatively short. And I've been wanting to do a minor prophet for a while, and I felt led to do Habakkuk. And so we're going to jump in here. In our first uh, week, it's called uh, Righteous Anger, and we're going to be in Habakkuk 
chapter 1. And if you want to know what passage in Habakkuk to read ahead of time for the next week, um, under the coming up on our connect wall, there's just a sheet that has the, I think we're five weeks. This is the first week and we'll be here four more weeks, so five weeks total in Habakkuk. You can grab that on the back uh, wall on your way out if you uh, want to know. It's pretty if you have a Bible that does headings, it's, it's not much different than the headings, so uh, if you don't get one, don't fret. You can probably just read Habakkuk every day, and it'd take you uh, 20 minutes um, in that. Uh, so I'm going to read uh, Habakkuk 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, and here's what it says. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So as we jump in, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into the meat of it, but I have to tell you a little bit about Habakkuk, and uh, somebody uh, said, I- I'm just glad that I get to know how to say Habakkuk now, and then so I looked up how to say Habakkuk on YouTube, and there's like six different videos that tell you to say it six different ways. So however you've heard it said is probably right, and I just say Habakkuk, and that's what we're going with for the rest of uh, the, the, the series, but nothing's really known about this guy at all. Like, the only time that we hear of him is in this book. A lot of the other minor prophets, you can find them mentioned in other places or they're referenced in other um, parts of the Old Testament, but nothing, all we know about him is what he wrote here. And so... Um, Anybody who says this is exactly who Habakkuk was, we don't really know. Here are some things that people believe about it. Some people believe that he was a temple prophet, that he was around and involved in the temple because of the style of the prophecies and that there were uh, temple prophets that prophesied with musical instruments. So if you look up 1 Corinthians 25, 1, the prophets of the temple, uh, as the music is playing, they prophesy. And then at the end of this book, at the end of Habakkuk, um, it talks about uh, the stringed instruments that were playing as Habakkuk was prophesying. He says to the choir master with stringed instruments, the last line of the book. And so people draw some conclusions that, well, maybe if he's prophesying with the stringed instruments and the, uh, that, then he's connected to the temple because we know that happened at the temple, but we don't know for sure. But we also know that he's very acquainted with the stories of God's help of Israel. We'll go through those in the coming weeks, the things that he references. And you might ask, you might say, well, uh, wasn't all of Israel, didn't they all, weren't they all very acquainted with the stories of God's help? The answer is No. I mean, if you read in the Old Testament, they lost the Torah, they lost the Old Testament, the the writings, they lost them for years. They didn't have them. Like, imagine having the Bible, right, as we have it today, and the church as a whole, right, the universal church just loses it. We can't find the copies of it. That's what happens in the Old Testament. And one of the kings goes and he finally finds, he's like, oh, man. We've been doing everything wrong. It's Josiah. And Josiah then just reinvents the nation and their worship. But 
So not everybody's acquainted with the stories of God's help, but Habakkuk is. He, he quotes them. He references them, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. And, and you need some, some background to understand where he's prophesying. Right? So I'm going to give you just a quick overview here. At the, after the relative peace, and I say relative peace, of King David and King Solomon's reign, Right, so after David reigns and his son Solomon reigns, after that, Solomon's sons both go and they're trying to take the throne. And so what happens is the, the, it splits the nation, right? And so um, uh, Jer- it splits the nation into two. Uh, the northern half is still called Israel, and there's 10 tribes of Israel. And the southern half is called Judah, and there's two tribes of Judah, which are Judah and Benjamin. And so it is split in that way, and Jeroboam was crowned the king of the ten northern tribes. And there's still references Israel in the Old Testament. So you have to be, you have to be uh, watchful sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament, and it's talking about Israel. It might not mean the whole nation of Israel. It might just mean the ten northern tribes. So you have to be careful when you read that, and so you have to know the background a little bit. And then on the southern end, Rehoboam was the king of the southern kingdom, and they called that kingdom Judah, and that was made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So you have this split, and they've become different uh, in the way, in the places that they worship, right? The northern kingdom doesn't come down to Jerusalem to do sacrifices anymore, even though that's where God says to do sacrifices. Everything kind of becomes distorted, and what happens is that Israel, the northern 12 tribes, they become unfaithful to God, and God used the Assyrian nation to overthrow them. So Israel, these 10 tribes, they're just, they're not following God anymore. They're not doing the sacrifices. They're not coming with pure hearts before God anymore, and God warns them. He warns them in Isaiah. He warns them in Hosea. It's like, you guys are off the path, and he tells them, if you do not get back on, uh, on the path with me, then I'm going to send a a nation from the north and they're going to overthrow you. And so Assyria comes in and overthrows the Israel nation. And from that point on, those 10 tribes are lost to history. So what Assyria does is they they scatter them. So they took some from all these different tribes and they put them in this part of their kingdom. And then they put other people from other tribes in this part of their kingdom, in this part of their kingdom. And they made them fully integrate into the culture even by marrying Assyrian women and uh, blending of the families so that after a few generations, the the bloodline is lost. That, That was Israel. Now, I believe that God symbolically brings all these people back in Acts chapter 2, but that's another message for another time, okay? And now, Habakkuk sees that. As he's in the southern kingdom, he sees that, and he sees the same disobedience that got Israel overthrown. He now sees it in Judah, and he wants God to right all the wrongs. This is what he's talking about as we go in. So, So when did Habakkuk write this? So he wrote this probably in that place where Babylon is going to become a, 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 a nation of power, but before they're actually exiled. Before, uh, spoiler alert, at the end of Habakkuk, um, nothing really changes and God sends judgment on them, okay? So he writes it in that 610 to 597 AD range, and he's warning Judah about what would ultimately happen. 
So when we write, when we, or when we read Habakkuk and we see what God tells Habakkuk he's going to do, we see in history that he actually did that. It wasn't an idle threat or it wasn't a false prophecy. It was something that God said, this is what's going to happen, and then it happened. And it starts off with Habakkuk saying, uh, with the, the book saying, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, uh, here's what I want you to understand. It doesn't say the oracle that Habakkuk heard. It doesn't say the, the oracle that Habakkuk was spoken to about. It said that he saw. So what is this? How did he see it? It doesn't tell us how he saw it. But I know he didn't hear it. I know he saw it. I don't know how he has a conversation and, and he describes it as seeing it. So I don't know if he has a, 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 where he has an experience where he is in the throne room with Jesus, with God, and God is telling him all this, and he sees the heavenly places. That happens all the time with the prophets in Scripture. But I don't know. But it's what he saw, so he was a seer. Oracle means a proclamation or an announcement, and it also has this connotation of being a burden on the person that the person has to. It feels like they must give the word. And so when Habakkuk sees whatever he sees, he, he knows that he has to tell the people what he has seen. He felt burdened to tell of what God had told him and what he saw. And, and Habakkuk, you know that Habakkuk knows God because you all have friends. Right? You all have acquaintances that, that you know you kind of have to, if they ask you a question, you kind of have to tiptoe around what you might really believe. Or, and I'm not just talking about Jesus. I'm talking about everything, uh, politics, medicine, whatever it is. Right, And you know you just kind of have to tiptoe around because you don't want to offend and you don't figure it out. And so there's kind of this like back and, pl- in, back and forth interplay between you and that person. And it takes a while before you're like, oh, yeah, okay. No, this is what I actually believe. And that's usually after they give you a hint because they're doing the same thing and they give you a hint that they believe what you believe. And then you're like, oh, okay, let's talk about it then, right? That's not how, that's not how Habakkuk, that's not how he approaches God, right? He just jumps into this conversation. There's no pleasantries involved. He just jumps in and asks like the biggest questions of all humanity of all time, right? He doesn't go like, oh, God, man, it's nice to see you. Uh, and I don't know if he's in the throne room, but it's great to be in the throne room. I'm so glad that we're hanging out right now. Yeah. How are things going up here? It's going good, Habakkuk. How are things going down there? Oh, you know, it's not great, but can we talk about that? No. He doesn't do any of that. He just jumps in. And he says, God, how long am I going to cry for help? Like, how long until you hear me? I'm, I, I, there's, I'm saying violence, violence, and you're not doing anything about it. Woof. No pleasantries. Just jumps right into it. See, but you having these types of conversation with God is a right given by the blood of Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You walk in with the reverence before the throne, but you also do it with confidence. This confidence doesn't mean you're strutting in like this. It means you're saying, I know that I'm allowed to be here. I know that I'm allowed to come into the presence of God. I know that he's not gonna reject me. I know that I can walk in here and he'll hear me. I know that I can walk in here and we can have a conversation. Right, so it's not this smugness that says, you owe me, God, and so I'm gonna come in and you're gonna talk to me. It's, no, I belong here and I'm grateful to be here because Hebrews also says that Jesus in the body of his flesh torn open. It's like how the veil was torn open and so in the, by, the, by the blood and body of Jesus, we can say, God, I know it's okay for me to be here. I know you're not gonna kick me out. I know you accept me. I know I'm not gonna be struck dead in your presence. So you coming to God and asking these big questions, it's a birthright. Look, God's not scared of your emotions or your feelings or your struggles. Like when you say something, you're like, God, I'm really angry right now. He doesn't go, oh, I am shocked. Huh. Okay, well, let's talk about this anger, right? When we're we're hurt and we're weeping, God, I feel like you're so far from me. He's like, I know how you feel. I gave you feelings so you can feel things. And yes, uh, there are good feelings and there are right feelings, but there are wrong feelings, and we're, 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 we're learning to navigate that together, but God's not scared of your emotions, right? We don't have to sanitize our prayers. Meaning, we don't have to, if, if we're feeling hate and rage, right? we don't have to say, God, I'm a little mad right now. As if that is somehow uh, more acceptable to him. Or, or, or you say, God, it's, it's been a little bit, since I've talked to you. And he's up there and he knows, oh, it's been six years. (laughs) Yeah, okay, God, six years. But they lost the Bible longer than that. I mean, you could certainly forgive me. Right, we we don't have to, you can have these conversations with God. And we come in with the right, it's not a smugness, it's uh, it's not making God do anything. It's not, this, it's not this demanding of God, you have to do this, you have to do that. You can have these conversations with God that you don't need to sanitize. And so Habakkuk jumps right into these. How long do I cry for help? See, at the, at the core of what's happening, Habakkuk's dealing with evil. He, he sees everything that's happening around him, and he already knows what happened to Israel and how they were taken off. And he's asking the question, God, why are you standing idly by while so much evil is happening? 
How many of us have asked that? (laughs) 100%? Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you do not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? God, why do... Why does these things happen to seemingly good people? Why is is this evil being perpetrated? We're going to look at this in two ways. And the first way we have to understand is that we might rightly do that with culture today. But Habakkuk is lamenting over the evil among God's people. He's not saying, God, Assyria is so bad. They're sacrificing to Baal and to Molech. They're, they, they're eating pigs and shrimp and they're doing all of these bad things. He's not saying ah, that Babylon is really bad. They're, they're out of care. They're ruthless. They're violent. They're angry. He's looking, at around, he's looking around at the people that are called to be the people of God and he is saying, we need help. There's violence going on, and you're not saving us, but it's all from within. See, as a universal, capital C, not local body, capital C church, we must be diligent in pursuing God. Right? The people of Judah had stopped being diligent in pursuing God. You read in other prophets, and some, they're, they're bringing lame animals to be sacrificed. Sick animals, when God wants the pure and the unblemished. There's even, there's even stories about other altars to other gods being built in the temple of God. Right? They, were, they had just cast off everything. And so while I believe that the church is an overwhelming vehicle for good, we have to rightly contend with our shortcomings. This is big church picture here. Scandals. These sex scandals right there, all over, all over. Leaders abusing and then just changing congregations and people knowing about it. If you follow anything with the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Convention has been corrupted by these type of scandals for decades. And they're just coming to light now five years ago, six years ago, right? Protestants always want to look at and say, oh, it's just the Catholic Church. It's just the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church has a lot of blood on their hands. But we've focused so much on them that it's been happening under our nose as well. There's abuse of power with just pastors, leadership that wants to come in and they, it's my way or the highway. If you don't like it, you're fired. You have to get out. You have to leave the church. But there's this abuse of power that comes in the church. There's the lust for political power. And I use the word lust because I don't think that it's bad that Christians get involved in politics, but when politics becomes the vehicle by which we think we will be saved, or that someone will be saved, or that that's how we become a Christian nation, is if we get all the right people in. Look, if you understood what it took a politician to rise up in the ranks, you would put your faith in none of them. Right? None of them. And this lust for political power has weakened the witness of the American church. 
Now, if you know me, you know that I believe that God, that one day every nation's going to bow to Jesus. And so America will do that, but it's not going to do that if we elect the right president. It's going to do that if he comes and visits and revives us. Lust for political power has gone over control. And just the overall apathy of Western Christianity. We see it. We see things happening, and we're just like the frog in boiling water. You know what that is? There's this old fable. It doesn't actually happen like this, but there's this old fable that was like, if you had a pot of boiling water and you dropped a frog in, it would jump out immediately because it knew it was in danger. But if you put a frog into a cold uh, pan of water and just started it boiling, it wouldn't realize that it was heating up and then it would die. I'm glad the kids are up here for this story. But um, that's not true. It's not how it happens. But that's kind of like the analogy that we use. And the, the Western church has just been that frog in the pot of boiling water. Where all this stuff happens around us, and we don't, we, we don't talk about it until it gets too extreme. And then half the time when we talk about it, we just talk in hateful, unhelpful ways. So we have to contend with our shortcoming, and, but we have to also understand that sin in the church doesn't stop our mission. It does make our mission more difficult, but it doesn't stop what God's called us to do. Because if sin in the church stopped our mission, we wouldn't have a mission. We would never go anywhere. Because if I'm on mission and I'm doing something and it's going to stop when I sin, I'm a train. I might get to the next station, but I'm probably just going to hit the skids a few few miles down the tracks. And and, and Peter is, is talking about this. Look, he says, it's time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. Look, God's judgment is purifying and cleansing, not punitive and capricious. And here's what I mean by that. The, the, the judgment of God is meant to remove the things in our lives on, on an individual level. It's meant to remove the things of our lives that keep us from him. And on a church level, it's to purify the church, to make her a bride dressed in white the way that the Bible describes us, right? And it's, but he doesn't do it to punish us in a way that uh, keeps us from ever getting back to him. He, he wants to purify and cleanse us, and it's not capricious. And capricious means he just does it willy-nilly, just does, oh, I'll, I'll do it here today, and I'll do it here today. He knows exactly what he's doing when he's doing it. And so Peter says it starts with us, but then he says, if you think it starts with us, and we're his bride, we're his children, we're his church, can you imagine what's going to happen to that person? Do you ever have a friend whose parents were more strict than your parents? And you guys are going off and you're doing something that you're not supposed to be doing, right? Maybe you're... you're throwing eggs at a house or kicking a garage and running away. I hear this stuff happens. I don't know that I ever did it, Um, right? And you get caught, and you know, I'm going to be grounded. But man, Danny over there, he's going to get killed by his parents. We can get punished. And then Peter's saying, but it's going to be really bad for that, for them. 
They, they don't know Jesus. We do. And so ours is purifying and cleansing. Theirs will ultimately be for destruction. And so he's pointing at the culture. And so while we deal with the evil within our ranks, we also have to live in the culture and see what's happening in the culture. And understand, the world is ours for the taking. That's Matthew 28. That's the Great Commission. And because the world is ours for the taking, we can look at the state of the world and ask the same questions that Habakkuk does. Right, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to look at the world and see that it's a harvest field full of, of white. We're supposed to look at the world and say, that belongs to the church. That belongs to Jesus, and he's given it to us. We have to go get it. And so Habakkuk looks out, and he, and he sees this, and so we can ask these same questions about the world. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Why is there so much evil out there? Why do I have to be a part of this? Why do I live in the world? Why don't you just take me up, God? Don't ever pray that. Why don't you just take me up? Our question should be, how do you want to use me right now? And if you're, if you're stuck on that question of why don't you just take me up, why don't you just take me up, Come meet with me and we'll get rid of that voice telling you that you need to be taken up and out of culture. And we want to ask these questions, but I also want to give us a little bit of a historical perspective really quick, okay? Before we jump into this, right, this is the best time in history ever to be alive. Ever. Well, uh, what about, what about, I really, I've heard some great things about like the 1950s. Can I be, I'd love to go back then. Yeah, if you were white, middle-class American, get dropped in India and tell me that it's a good place and time to be alive. <laughs> this is the best time in history to be alive. Your life expectancy is longer than ever. Besides Genesis, where people were living like 900 years old, right? Besides that. You're, everybody here is going to live on average longer than anybody has ever done in history. <laughs> There's less people that die in famine, war, or sickness. Right? We're in this upheaval right now. Oh, there's wars and rumors of wars. And all that. Yeah. You know what? You know when there was wars and rumors of wars? All throughout history. And the Mongols are killing people by the millions. And the Ottoman Empire is just ravaging land, killing, pillaging, and all that goes along with that. Less people die in famine now. I mean, good, good luck if you didn't know how to farm in the 1600s. You had to learn at some point or else you were going to die, but good luck. Less people die from sickness now. Did you know that, that, that the, the mortality rate of infants and mothers skyrocketed when they learned, wash your hands? Like, you can look that up. Like they're saying, that, why are so many moms and children dying in childbirth? Oh, maybe if we wash our hands, it'll be better. And the rate skyrocketed of, of living through it. And yes, right now, the weapons of war have the potential to cause more destruction, it hasn't yet. And ultimately, the gospel is accessible to more people. There's a man, and his name was David Livingston. And he lived in England, and he got a burden for Africa. Right, this is a 
hundred-ish years ago, somewhere in that range. He has a burden for Africa. And so you know how he had to evangelize the nation of Africa, or the continent of Africa? Get dropped off in a port city? And walk. Doesn't know languages? Maybe he can get a horse, maybe he can get a donkey, maybe. But that's what he did. You can look him up. He, he starts at the north, and there are some people down here in Africa, some Christian missionaries, but he just has to walk and go, and maybe he'll be able to speak to the people about it. Hopefully, there's somebody there that might know a language, but he has to go through. But this is where the phrase comes from, Dr. Livington, I, pre- Dr. Livingston, I presume, because he met a, another man who had, had dreamed it. It's, it's a great story, but the gospel is... is way more accessible to everyone around the world ever, okay? So understand that this is the best time in history to be alive. And you'll say, but society's going downhill really fast. And I tend to agree with you on that, right? But you have to understand that ancient societies were far more depraved, far more depraved. There were pagan temples on every corner and ritual worship of these gods. Now, (laughs) There are still pagan temples around. We call them mosques and kingdom halls and Mormon churches, right? So there's still these pagan temples around, but they're not sacrificing out to God. They're not having uh, the way that they would worship that God um, that I won't say in front of children, right? They don't, they're not doing that on the streets, right? If you read about the, the type of stuff that people did out in the open to worship their gods in the ancient world, whew, Makes you just feel icky. That's the best word for it, right? There was live action murder for sport. Hey, everybody, why don't you come down to the old Coliseum this evening? Pay $5 and you can see a Christian fight a lion. Or hey, these people believe in Jesus. Why don't we just burn them in the public square? this, This is what societies did Alternative lifestyle, even those involving children, were socially acceptable. And understand something. We live in the best time to be alive, and we're less depraved, though it's, it's falling a little bit, but we are less depraved. The reason that these things are better all originate in a Christian worldview. That, that's, that's how come things are good now. It's because people actually went out and taught that every person Man, woman, child, slave, free, Gentile, Jew. We taught they are all made in the image of God. And without the baseline belief that people are made in the image of God, then if that's not a baseline belief, then the the motto of a person should just be, I'll do whatever I want whenever I want. Doesn't, I, don't, I don't care who I hurt. I don't care what I do. I don't care who I run over to do what I want to do. This hedonism, I'll do whatever, right? Unless we understand everybody's made in the image of God. There's a right way to live and there's a wrong way to live. And the Bible tells us that innately, for the most part, we know the difference. Right? We know innately that cold-blooded murder is wrong. We know innately that lying and cheating to get ahead and to get money and to get prestige, we know innately that that's wrong. And it all comes from this Christian worldview. That being said, we still should weep because the world still needs Christ. And we have to understand that there are still evil forces that work against the world. 
And so we see Habakkuk here, and he's saying, God, I see all of this, I see all of this, I see all of this. What are you going to do? And we can ask the same question. And, and, and what we have to understand is that the depravity of the world is not something to be afraid of, but is a battle to be won. Right? I'm, I'm not afraid of what I see. I'm not afraid that there's not 10 commandments in every courthouse anymore. I'm not afraid that they don't allow prayer in public schools, right? I'm not afraid of that stuff. But I see it and I say, all right, God, where are we fighting today? Where are we going today? Here's what Habakkuk sees. He sees iniquity. Iniquity is people willfully giving themselves over continuously without conscience to sin over and over again. And I've talked about it, that iniquity changes who you are as a person. Changes your DNA, like literally, scientifically, it can change the way your DNA functions, iniquity. He sees, and he puts them in pairs. He sees destruction and violence. He sees strife and contention. He sees perverted justice and he sees wickedness swallowing up the righteous and he is rightly angry at the state of what he sees. It is okay to be rightly angry, not unrighteously angry, but this righteous anger at what you see and the depravity you see. It's okay. I was sitting across from somebody and I'm, we're walking through some steps to freedom and deliverance and we're there and I'm seeing the toll that the enemy has taken on this person's life and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes this anger rises up in me that you devil need to stop what you're doing and I hate you for it and I'm okay with that feeling. It sharpens me, makes us more effective. Right? There's this place where this righteous anger can, can make us effective and sharp, but then there's this place where the righteous anger becomes unrighteous, and we want to take things into our own hands. We want to, we want to overstep the bounds. We want to respond uh, to violence with violence. We want to respond with anger to anger with anger. We want to respond with unkind words with our own unkind words, and our anger then becomes unrighteous. And you need to let it go. So how do we respond in righteous anger? There's a book that came out, gosh, I don't even know, five, six years ago. Um, and it was called The Benedict Option. Written by a guy named Rod, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Dreher. It's D-R-E-H-E-R. Rob, uh, Rod Dreher. And... He wrote this book, and he's tackling these major, um, uh, the, the major societal ills that he's seen in society. So he's, he's kind of looking out, and he's saying, I see this, and I see this, and I see this. And the guy is, is he's really, he, it's such a good, half of the book's really good, because half of it, he's just tying in, he's saying, historically, this is why this is happening. Here's where it's come from. Here's where it's risen up. Here's why we're dealing with this in society today. Here's the failures in the past that have led us to have to deal with it right now. 
And so the first half of every chapter that he took, it was, it was great. And I'm reading and I'm like, yes. And, but then his, his remedy at the end of, at the last half of every chapter was, so the church just needs to withdraw, hide, and become its own thing. And it got me so angry by the end of the book that that was his, that was his uh, formula for everything. Like he's, he's diagnosing it. He's telling us where we failed. It's coming. I'm like, yes, awesome. Now go hide. And I'm like, no. Do we run away and hide? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill, listen, cannot be hidden. So if you are, like this comes right after the Beatitudes, blessed are the righteous, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the hungry, blessed, blessed are the meek, all these blessed. And then he says, if you're, and so Jesus is saying, if you're living this way, you cannot be hidden. Because you will stand out. You will be like that city uh, that is on the hill whose light cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But you put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. There are way too many lamps in my house. There just are. I've, I've talked to Lauren about it, but she likes lamp light and not overhead light. So we have a lot of lamps. And they all produce light in a different area of the house. We're not going to turn on a lamp and then put a blanket over the lamp. We're not going to turn on a lamp and then put it in a closet. It's supposed to give light to the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You, listen to me, you are children of light. It's not something you become. It's not something you grow into. It is birthright by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord. He turns you instantly into children of light. So do we run away and hide? My contention is, is that we can't run away and hide if we're living for Jesus. Like we can't not be that city. We can't not be the light. We can't not be the salt. We don't run away and hide. Some people do that. And then some people go to the other far extreme where we just become antagonistic and hateful towards culture. Where they'll hold signs that say, uh, these types of people uh, will rot in hell. The, the, where the message of the church to the message of the church to the world is, hey, turn or burn instead of Man, Jesus is Lord. He rules over everything and he wants you to be his son and his daughter by believing in him. Just turn and live his way and he will be with you. It's easier. That's, that's difficult to, to tell somebody. It's easier to say, oh, you're just gonna burn in hell. Colossians 3 says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Grace, seasoned with salt, to answer what? Each person. Not each group of people. 
It's so easy to look out and lump people into groups. Political affiliations, uh, sexual orientations, uh, beliefs about uh, about Jesus and other things. And it's easy to lump people into groups and it's easier to judge groups than it is to judge a person. Paul's saying you deal with each person. So how do we respond or do we love? Because God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but that they would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I want you to note what it does not say. It does not say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He gave that job to the church, and they're supposed to go out and condemn everybody. Doesn't say that. I look, I, I've, I've looked through the Bible. It doesn't say that anywhere. But if God looks at the world, that's something to be loved, then we should look at it as something to be loved. Out of fear and unrighteous anger, the church has struggled to love outsiders. And there is a balancing act between being wise and being loving in culture today. That's why Jesus sends out his apostles and he says, you have to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. You don't get taken advantage of. You don't walk into places where you're not supposed to walk. You don't walk into places where you can't handle the warfare yet. You're wise in where you go, but you go in a purity and an innocence with a peace about you. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit. If we want to know how to respond to each person, if we want to know how to respond to culture today, if we want to know how to respond to the ills and the failures inside the church, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to not end up like the nation of Judah, full of sin and violence and strife and contention, okay with our iniquity. We need the Spirit. Here's what Galatians says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. We do a whole message series on those two verses. If you're walking by the spirit, he's not gonna lead you into sinful things. So if you find yourself in sinful patterns, in addictive patterns, you're not walking by the spirit in that area of your life. Because if you walk by the spirit, the flesh will weaken, the flesh will die, the flesh will rot, but in a good way. (laughs) Because what your flesh wants and what the spirit wants, they're butting heads they're going opposite of each other. Have you, have you ever seen two like mountain rams who are fighting for uh, dominance within the flock? It is awesome and scary. And if they could get concussions, every hit would be a concussion. But this is what the flesh and the spirit are. They're rearing up and they're hitting each other. So we need it in our own lives to not walk in the desires of our flesh, to not gratify our flesh. Because the more that I gratify my flesh, the things that I want God to do in me, through me, for me, with me, 
It's going to keep me from doing those things. And so if I want to do those things, if I want to be used by God, if I want to be empowered by God, if I want to be deeply in love with Jesus, right? Then I can't always do the things that I want to do, that my flesh wants to do. Jesus, when he says it, he says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. When Jesus says it, he says, nobody who puts their hand to the, to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says it, he says, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, come and follow me. We have to walk in the things that the Spirit wants us to walk in. And we need the power of the Spirit to begin to understand, to, to understand and win the battles within church, within culture, within our lives. We need the power of the Spirit Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. There's this story. Oswald Chambers, uh, if you don't know who he is, you might uh, recognize, he wrote a a little uh, daily devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. For all my college years, it sat on the tank of my toilet, right? Um, And he was having, uh, or his wife was having a conversation with an evangelist uh, during a revival over in, uh, I think it was Scotland, but I, I don't remember. And, uh, and she's talking to him, and he says to her, um, if you get permission, will you talk to my plowman about the state of his soul? And Oswald's wife heard that, and he, she thought, well, so do I ask the plowman, is it okay with you if I ask for you, uh, if I ask you about the state of your soul? And the evangelist she was talking to got mad at her. Like, that's not what I meant. I'm talking about permission from the Holy Spirit. Right, so he wasn't, bi- he wants her to ask permission from the Holy Spirit to see if she's supposed to talk about Jesus to the plowman. Now, I think we fall largely into a couple camps. There's people who, who love evangelism, who love talking about Jesus, but they don't ask the Holy Spirit. They just go scattershot. It's like, it's like a shotgun approach. It's like I'm going to shoot and all these bullets are going to fly and maybe I'll hit somebody. But if, if we're looking at Paul and we know how to answer each person, it's not so much a shotgun, but it's like a sniper. God, who's in your targets today? Who's in your sights? Who do I go after? Who do I talk to? Who do I tell my testimony to? Who do I say that God just loves you? And then the other, we just don't ask. And so when we don't ask, we don't feel prompted. And when we don't feel prompted, we don't do anything. It's kind of like, ah. Right? We walk into the coffee shop, we walk into, we walk into Food Lion, and we're afraid to ask, God, what do you want to do right now? Because we know he might answer. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We can look around the church we can look around the culture and we can rightfully say this 
is wrong. This is out of step. This is where the church needs repentance. This is where the world needs Jesus, but we never do it cynically. Don't let cynicism invade the way that you look at the church or that you look at culture. Remember, remember, you are children of light and the world is yours for the taking. Stay in step with the Father like Jesus did. Stay in step with Jesus. Stay in step with the Holy Spirit because he's empowered you to do it. So we look not as, as lament of the state of the world, but we look at it and say, okay, God, where do we push back the gates of hell? Where do we storm through the gates of hell? Where do we find you in this? That's the nature of spirit living. As I close today, do you understand that Jesus is always the answer? Like, God, what do you want to do about this thing that's happening in society, in our culture, in our town, in our neighborhood? What do you want to do? I want to bring Jesus to bear on the situation. God, what do you want to do in my life, in my heart? Where do you want to purify me? How, how, how do you want to purify me? I want to bring Jesus into every situation. You understand that he's always the answer. Now, if you're a kid here today or a teenager and you write Jesus for what is two plus four on your math test, don't blame me. Understand the deeper thing of what I'm saying here, all right? Jesus is always the answer. You have to do an honest assessment of yourself. How do you view the world? Is it something just going to hell in a handbasket or is it something to be saved? Like, is our physical world crying out still, like uh, Paul writes in Romans? Is it still groaning? Is it still wanting for us to be revealed? And then how can you grow in your spirit living? I gave two ways. I said, well, look, we need it for ourselves, and we need it to fight the battles. Have you understood that you need it for yourself, but not fighting the battles? Or have you been fighting the battles so long that... The, the way that it's working in you is, is now uh, a little bit more difficult. There seems to be a little bit more blockage there. How can you grow in spirit living? Stand with me. Holy Spirit, come. Lead and guide and direct.
Lord, in the name of Jesus. I ask that the Spirit right now would show us, Lord, where we've failed. Where we've failed in, uh, within ourselves or within the church, Lord. Where we've disregarded you, where we've gone our own way. Lord, I pray that you would draw us don't show us our failure to belittle to belittle us or to shame us but to restore and to grow Lord show us in those places where we've looked at the world and we've written people off whether it's individual people or groups of people, where we've just written people off in culture. They'll never be saved. They'll never understand. God, forgive us for that doubt of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But draw it to mind and draw us to, to repent and draw, draw us to, to seek your face. Tell us how you want to purify us, how you want to move us forward, Lord, how. Teach us how to look at the world the way that Jesus did and the way that the Father does because the Father looks at our world and he looks at his bride and he loves it. He loves it. It's your kindness, Lord, that can bring us to repentance. for the love of God that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So Father, right now as we, we just sing and as we reflect, I pray that you would infuse our spirits with your love, that you would infuse our hearts and our emotions and our minds with your love. If you want to pray this morning and you just want to deal you and God, you can come up to the altar, you can kneel or sit at the altar. And when somebody comes to the altar, they're saying, I just want it to between me and God. And so we don't go on and lay hands on them or anything like that. But if you want individual prayer, um, Andy and Amy are on the ministry team this morning. If you weren't here last week, last week I said that I'm not going to do any public prayer. Um, until 2024, I felt like that's where God was leading me. And so if you come up to me and ask for prayer, I'm going to say, go see Andy and Amy. If you want a fuller explanation, you can go listen last week. But I just want us to be infused with, with God's love right now. So Lord, I pray that your love would just start to descend on people right now. That your love would just fill our minds our emotions, our spirits, Lord, I pray that we would understand you and your love for us, your love for your bride, your love for the world, Lord. 
you are good, Lord, and let us just experience a bit of that as we sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making me wise. In the soul I now surrender, you are breaking the ground. So I yield to you. trust you I don't need to understand make me your vessel make me an offering make me whatever you want me to be I came here with nothing but all you have given me Jesus In the pressing, you are making me wild. In the soul, I now surrender. You are making me ground. You are breaking. Jesus, bring me wine out of me. 
I used to sing it and pray it, and then when I was getting crushed and I was getting pressed, I said, God, why are you doing this? And he brought this song to mind, and he said, because you asked for it. So if you're being crushed and pressed, you asked for it. God, we thank you. We trust you. We know you. We want to know you more. We love you. God, be with us. Show us your, your goodness. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a new lens, new spiritual glasses with how to see the world, how to look at your bride. God, let it be done for your glory and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless.